We're in Luke chapter 4, and especially for those just joining us, we've been looking at the ministry, the life of Jesus Christ as presented in Luke's gospel. And we've come to chapter 4, looking at his ministry in Galilee, very interesting part of Christ's ministry. And it lasts in Luke from this point, I think all the way through verse 50 of chapter 9. And uh, this morning, we're going to begin with this uh, picture in Galilee. Let me read for you verses 14 to 22 of Luke chapter 4. This is, if you remember, right after the temptation, the great temptation in the, in the wilderness. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the glorious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And we'll stop there for today. Luke is giving us an account in his particularly God-inspired way of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Some things have been omitted, as I told you previously. He doesn't do everything chronologically. He's admitted parts of Jesus' ministry that he may touch on later. What I mean by that is a time, as much as a year has passed since the incident in the wilderness to this uh, particular thing that's happened in Nazareth. So he admits those events after the great temptation. This thing here does not happen immediately after his baptism. History says there were at least 200 towns and villages in Galilee. And it's believed that Christ was moving around in those towns and villages proclaiming and teaching the word of God. And this particular place we read about here, he comes to Nazareth. What is Nazareth? Well, it's his hometown, if you will. He was brought up here. He was reared by Joseph and Mary here. He's already been ministering in Galilee, and now he comes back here. The Gospel of John records some of this time in Galilee, and you can find that especially in chapter 4 of John's Gospel. And it was also at this time that Christ crossed paths with John in their mutual complementary ministries. For a period of time, they were ministering at the same time before John was imprisoned and later killed for his faith. But they're ministering side by side. If you remember, 
that caused confusion with some people. And he said to them, I am not the Christ. He told people who were, you must be him. You must be all these things you're doing. But he clearly proclaimed, no, I am not the Christ. He did that in John 1. One of the things we ought to see here is that nothing is going to present, prevent Jesus Christ from fulfilling his call, his ministry, the work the Father gave him to do. We see that from how Herod could not kill him at the time of his birth, even though he took it upon himself to strike down, I don't know, thousands of children trying to ferret out Jesus and slay him. Satan could not prevent Jesus from doing the work the father had sent him to do, even though he had this tremendous ability to a certain extent to tempt the Christ. Nothing is going to present, prevent Christ from carrying on his ministry. What we're going to see by the end of his ministry is this is the one who has been called prophet, priest, and king. We're going to see that. The great prophet, the eternal king, and particularly here in Luke, the sympathetic high priest. He can be sympathetic to us because of what we saw previously in the beginning of chapter four, all that he went through. So he's come to Galilee, and here we begin to see him fulfill the words of Isaiah chapter nine. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That was fulfilled, and we're going to see that right here, especially in chapter 4 as he comes to preach in Nazareth. This is an interesting thing. I think, uh, I don't know who wrote it. There was a book said, uh, written some time ago, You Can Never Go Home. Well, Christ goes home. Things just aren't the same. Uh, I grew up someplace in another state, and when I go back, you know, you scratch your head. Where is this? Where is that? Who, what happened to them? Things change. And if people who I grew up with saw me, they would probably walk by and not even remember me. Thing, he's headed back here where he grew up. The one thing that's different from him and every one of us is he's coming with a clean slate. Jesus is going to stand before Nazareth as a perfect man and preach the good news from God. Can you imagine? As good as, as Rick is, as good as Chad is when they stand up and share the word of God, neither of them or anyone else who has graced our pulpit has stood there as a perfect man. This is incredible. Jesus is coming to them. In 1739, a man named John Wesley, anybody here grow up in the Methodist church? Some people have. 1739, John Wesley inaugurated his open-air evangelism crusade with these words that Jesus preaches here. This leads me to ask the question, and I really want you to think about this. What is the greatest sermon you've ever heard? What is the greatest one? Anybody here converted after hearing a preached message from the Word of God? That might be the greatest sermon you ever heard. I had an opportunity to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones on tape. Wonderful, powerful message. 
that great uh, Welshman who had a long ministry in London and other places. What's the greatest sermon you've ever heard? Well, this short message here, I would put up against the greatest one you may have ever heard. Christ is going to preach. The message we see in the scripture is short. I'm sure it was longer than this. But this is perhaps the greatest message that these people would ever hear. Look at the setting in verses 14 and 15. Jesus returned, that is, he has been in Nazareth before. Remember, he was reared here. He returned, and he came how? In the power of the Spirit. Remember, we saw this back in chapter 3 in verse 22. We saw this in, uh, in his baptism. We saw this in the ministry in the wilderness. The Spirit is with him. It is my prayer that I have come to you in that power this morning. I prayed to that end before I got here. I want the Holy Spirit to give me something to say and give you ears to hear, for this is the word of God. This is how he's coming to them. And a report went out about him through all the surrounding country. This is part of that attesting to that background that he has been preaching around Galilee before. And all over the place, Words are coming back. Have you heard this preacher? Listen, this is what he said. This is what he's done. I don't know if you've ever been excited about that or grew up in part of an evangelistic campaign, but sometimes you get excited about this. You get the word out. Oh, you need to come and hear so-and-so. The word was going out that he had done great things. They heard of his deeds and his ministry and what he had done up till now. This is the one they were looking for. Now we'll deduce whether they recognize that when we go on further here in this chapter and beyond. Do they recognize it? I have a feeling they had to ask this question of themselves. Is he the Messiah? We're hearing all these great things about him all throughout Galilee. Is he the one we're looking for? Uh, I forget who it is that wrote this commentator I read. Uh, about this particular thing going on in Galilee, he said, perhaps this is why Acts 1.8 reads as it does. And listen, I'm, many of you may have uh, uh, recognized this verse right away. You may have even memorized it. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, talking to the disciples near the time of Pentecost. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. No mention there of Galilee. Now, I don't know if there's any significance in that, but it's very interesting. Maybe it's because a witness has already been given in Galilee. That's what's going on here. Luke is dealing with that portion of Jesus' ministry, beginning here in verse 14 and going to the end of chapter 9. Well, look what he, how he comes. In the power of the Holy Spirit, it says, he has been led by that Holy Spirit in chapter four, verse one, to do what? To go into the wilderness to be tempted. Wow, what a way, you know, if it was us, we'd say, I didn't sign up for this, you know. But the truth is, when you became a Christian, you did sign up for this kind of thing, whether you realize it or not. We're not walking through this world without any problems without being attacked for our faith, without being questioned about our sanity, 
we're going to have problems. What we need then is what's going on here, the power of the Holy Spirit. It was with Christ at his baptism, and it was very, very clearly proclaimed from heaven by the Father. We saw that as an indicative, uh, a proof of the Trinity. The Father spoke these words about the Son, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him. We have evidence of that earlier. For us believers, it's this same Holy Spirit that comes into our lives. You, you think perhaps, or you know, a young Christian, you may think, how can I do these things? How can I be a better Christian? You have this means of grace that our Savior had, the Holy Spirit. We as believers had that. In Christ's return to Galilee, he comes in power. What was the report? They heard something. Perhaps it is what he's done elsewhere. Uh, he's done a number of things. If you remember in reading other places in scripture, you piece this together. He'd been in Capernaum for a while uh, and perhaps his ministry and, and uh, strength was shown there. But what we're gonna see here is coming back to Nazareth with a particular message from Isaiah. Let me, I just read to you words from Isaiah in verses 18 and 19, but the complete passage in Isaiah 61, let me finish for you. It's a little different than what we have here. We read, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's where it ends in Luke. Listen to the next words in, in Isaiah. <laughs> and the day of vengeance of our God. That's how Isaiah finishes that verse. That is not here in Luke. Why do you think that is? Beg your pardon? That's right. Christ has not come to exact vengeance at this point in his ministry. You go to the book of Revelation, you'll see that. When he comes back, it'll be on a mission to get vengeance against the enemies of God. Part of it. That's not what's going on here. And Christ, it's not like he doesn't know the scripture. He does, but he leaves that off. He and Luke writing wants to give us a different perspective. Uh, Dale Ralph Davies, a commentator, writes uh, some time ago, the University of South Carolina baseball team was playing an exhibition game against a prison team. And uh, there was a call. The USC batter was called out on a third strike and he turned to look at the umpire and the coach from the prison team yelled at him, whoa, you better be careful. He's serving a life a sentence for murder. <laughs> it changes your perspective, doesn't it? I don't think I'm gonna question his call. That's a true story. It will change your perspective. The perspective here has been changed by Jesus in the words he's bringing to these people here in Nazareth from what it will eventually be. Later, he will expand this message. The report seems to answer emphatically Nathaniel's question in John 1, 46. What was his question? It was almost rhetorical. 
Yes, can anything good come from Nazareth? (laughs) Yes, it can. Exceedingly good and even excellent. And he was glorified by it all, we read here in 15 and part B. And as of yet, through this particular passage, he has no opposition. He's come with this message. It's what they wanted to hear, no problems. Hendrickson describes what's going on here. He said he came spirit-endowed, widely advertised, synagogue-centered, and I want you to notice that for later, and he was popular. I mean, they they heard about him all over the place, and they marveled at what great things he was done. Well, secondly, let's look at his message beginning in verse 16. He went where? To the synagogue. This is not uh, unusual. This was the custom of Jesus. If you check throughout the the Gospels, many times, almost all the time, when he went into a city especially, this is where he started. This wasn't new with Paul. Paul (laughs) had to know about Christ when he went to a town. This is where he went. Why? It says here, as was his custom. Jesus, the God-man, made it his custom to go to the house of God. It wasn't the temple that had been destroyed with the Babylonian uh, conflict in 586 BC, but it was the second best thing. The the nation of Israel started constructing synagogues and it was their custom on the Sabbath to go there for teaching. He taught there and regularly did so. It was his custom, totally different from the scribes and Pharisees, isn't it? There's nothing written in scriptures about their power when they taught or even their correctness about what they taught. But Christ has come teaching the truth and with great power. He came in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus chose this place to come and minister to as the God-man. He is giving honor to his father in doing so. He is giving honor to the word of God in doing so. It's a lesson for us. In the Old Testament, there was no synagogue. In the New Testament, there was one developed after sometime after 586 BC. And it begins to appear and regular services are taking place there. The building itself was built to face Jerusalem with that thought in mind that the Messiah is coming. And how interesting that he does come And these people don't know it. He has come to fulfill. He said, I've come to fulfill this. Jesus is always in his place in the synagogue. It's the place where we go to see him. This is Jesus, the God man. His example is an example for us. Can you imagine how many dull and lifeless sermons Jesus must have sat under? I mean, it probably could have rolled through his mind, but he was without sin, so he probably didn't. You think that's what that says? Let me tell you. But that wasn't our Savior. Just think how he submitted himself to that as a God-man. Listening to some of these messages, we ought to be aware of this. Think of how many times he heard things that, well, that's, that's not right. Let me tell you, might have corrected it. But... It's what he came to do to honor the Father and the Word of God. You know, if I ask you what's the worst sermon you ever heard of, could you tell me? I don't want you to. (laughs) 
You may have heard a very dull, lifeless sermon. Please don't let that inner you, deter you from coming to the house of God. Have you ever read the testimony of Charles Spurgeon, how he became a Christian? It was in a little country church. There was a great snowfall. The regular minister couldn't get there, so a layman got up there and preached. He preached uh, like two verses from Isaiah and seemed to be keep continually repeating those two verses, those two verses, those two verses. There probably weren't 20 people there, but the Spirit drove that home and Charles Spurgeon was converted. He wasn't of much use, was he, <laughs> in the kingdom of God? He was a great use. We ought not to lightly forsake the assembling of ourselves together to come and worship in God's house, to worship God. With regard to sermons, you know, there are many things perhaps in them that we think could be done better. We, ask, we ought to ask ourselves, is pure doctrine preached? Not, is this the best speaker I've ever heard? <laughs> is this the word of God? Is there a want of unction or devoutness in worship? Uh, is there some kind of distraction to us? Well, that could be, and it's likely you may hear a child crying and that distracts you. You may be thinking of what you're going to have for dinner when you leave here. That could distract you. You may be praying silently about a great need you have this week. That could distract you, but don't let that keep you from worship. This is what God wants, and Jesus gave us this great example. We need to think long before we absent ourselves. I don't know that there's any blessing that's promised for someone who doesn't come to the house of God. But God promises to bless his word, uh, to the preached word that we hear here. He promises to bless the true preaching of the word of God. Well, this background here, uh, Luke shares with us what's going on. This is the preparation that's been made. He came, as was his custom, to the synagogue. And he stood up to read. Verse 16, what is he going to read? He didn't have the complete scriptures. What is he going to read? He's going to read what they did have, the Torah. In the time of the, and the time we're talking about here in the synagogue, the worship followed this prescribed formula. They always began with reading the Pentateuch. And then later in the service, they read the prophets. That was the extent of the Bible they had. It's amazing and it's interesting that the prophet that Jesus read from was the prophet Isaiah. Now, he had come here to do a lot of things. A number of events have passed. He's come here to these people that he knew. Uh, just think with your sanctified imagination. <laughs> he probably buried his stepfather or his foster father, Joseph, here in this place. He had come here and taken care of his mother. We know that because he had her, uh, he stayed nearby when he moved the family to Compertum so that he could have access easily to his mother. And we know he cared for her because later when he's ready to die, he says to John, you know, here's your mother, take care of her. And he tells John, you know, go, this is your mother, take care of her. Tells her, this is your son, that is. Well, he comes here, these things have taken place. He has all this contact it's possible he came before the Sabbath day because it says here, on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. He may have already been in Nazareth for a while, perhaps visiting, taking up some business of the father in another place. 
But on the Sabbath, he came. Customarily, the synagogue was open two other days of the week for activities, particularly teaching, sharing the word. The rabbis did things there, perhaps sacrifices. But this seems to be the first and only time that Jesus availed himself of this opportunity to preach in the synagogue. He used the word of God, we read in 17. Look how he did this. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. The rabbi who was in charge here would go to the ark, take out the Torah and lay it out. It was a scroll, had to be laid out. And whoever was going to speak would come and use that. It is believed that Christ, when he looked at that scroll, particularly went down through Isaiah till he got to these verses in chapter 61 in our English Bible, chapter 61 of Isaiah. And he reads, translating these Hebrew words, and it's believed that Jesus himself did this into the uh, Aramaic vernacular here. But Part of the worship was to deal with the prophets and Christ does that. He reads it and he preaches from it. And after part, if you remember the Shema from Deuteronomy, they started the worship with that. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and so on from Deuteronomy 6. And then they get to the end of it with the Aaronic benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. And the people would say, amen. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Amen. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. That came from Numbers. But right before that, with this scroll open, Christ picks up these words from Isaiah 66 and instructs the people in the word of God. It's interesting to say to see here, and uh, I don't know what great difference it makes. They stood here. He stood up to read. That was the practice there. If you remember, do you remember that taking place in any other place in Scripture? Well, you have to go back further in the Old Testament. In the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, you hear about the people standing to hear the word of God. And I think especially in Ezra, he read, the priest read for a long period of time, which might be why we don't stand to read the word here. Uh, Some of us might not make it if we read through an entire book. But that was the practice. And Christ again honors this worship. He stands for this. And after he does that, he sits down. What's he doing? He stood to honor the word of God and then he sat down. It was the practice for the rabbi or the other person who was speaking. And it didn't necessarily have to be that rabbi that handed him the Torah. When he sat down that that was going to be the moment he taught. And that's what he did. He sat down and had this message for them. Isaiah is introduced and and he gives them this word. And he says, clearing up any controversy about this, today this word has been fulfilled in your hearing. Some people say that wasn't about Jesus. But if you look at the scripture and study it in Isaiah, It couldn't be anybody else. It couldn't be the prophet himself because that wasn't the tone of his ministry to build up himself or place himself in the scenarios that were in Isaiah. It couldn't be the father because it said the spirit descended upon him and filled him in Isaiah. That wouldn't happen with God the father. It had to be Jesus Christ. So after being introduced, he speaks here and he says, 
Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Wow. Wow. If you had any doubt about the Messiah, I'm here to tell you it's me. This has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's been fulfilled? Well, we look at this, the message. What has he come to do? He's anointed, proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, and then to proclaim the year of the Lord. Who is he speaking to? Who are the poor? They're downtrodden people. They are people who are helpless, disadvantaged. He wasn't necessarily speaking about people who are economically poor, although they surely could be included. But there's some people, you know, you've met them in your life. Man, I feel bad for them. That's so sad. And nobody seems to care. He came to preach to those. One of the things to note, he doesn't exclude anyone in these passages here, these descriptions he's giving. But rather, he includes everyone. You know, we're poor. We just don't realize it. Your checkbook might not reflect that. But our souls are sometimes poor. We're without some of the things we need in our Christian life. We're surely poor <laughs> with regard to holiness. We need to be more holy. He's here to pre preach liberty to the captives. He is especially talking about freedom from what? Sin. Sin captivates us. It captures us. You can go back to where we started in Luke 1 and verse 77 to see about this. That term in Luke 77, 1, chapter 1, actually can be uh, interpreted remission of sins. That's what Jesus has come to preach, the remission of sins. How? He says, I've come to do that. There's nothing to commend these people to God, these poor, helpless people. There's nothing these captive people can do before God, no standing, but he's come to release them from that. The sin that enslaves our hearts, minds, and souls, he has come to free us from. Well, then he gives sight to the blind. He's talking here about physical and spiritual sight. Uh, he gets into this great deal uh, later in the book of Acts, uh, pardon me, in Luke, and then again in Acts, which is, uh, I think, instructive because the same author wrote Acts as wrote Luke, and he talks about the blind receiving their sight. And uh, we need, how much more do we need who are spiritually blind to be able to see the truths of God's word? Well, he also is preaching liberty to the oppressed. Freedom, liberty, release, Liberty from the oppression of sin, of the world we live in, those who are crushed in spirit. Some people have been shattered by a hard life, but he's here to tell you, you can have liberty in him. That is spiritual oppression will be talked about later in the same chapter, verses 31 to 36. And he gives relief from that. We're going to see that almost immediately after this message here that Jesus proclaims. And then he says, I've come to tell you about the year of the Lord's favor. What is that? Well, 
Well, it's like he's, it's like he's tying a bow around this present of the other four things. And he's saying, and I'm going to preach to you the year of the Lord's favor. Well, in Israel, that would send their minds thinking to what? The Jubilee. Every 50 years, there was that great celebration, although Israel in the Old Testament too many times failed to celebrate this. It was amnesty, if you will. If you lost your family, your clan's uh, lands, you could go back and get it. If you were an indentured servant for the past seven years, the year of Jubilee frees you from that. If you had this thing or other thing that had to be remedied, the year of Jubilee for that. That was the Old Testament idea of this. But here Christ is speaking about more than that as he has through this whole passage. It's more than just the time of Isaiah. I'm here to tell you the year of Jubilee, you are free from your sins if you will come to the Messiah. What more freedom does anybody, any of us want than that? Freedom from our sins. And what does he do? That's it. He rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant who would put it then in the ark. And he sat down. And the eyes of all of them were fixed on him. And he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, we have this theme and the substance of what he was saying fulfilled this day. Anybody ever preach to you like that? Today is the day of salvation. That's from the New Testament. Today, today. And that's what the message is from Christ here as the Messiah. Today, you've been waiting for hundreds of years. And I'm here to tell you, it's done. It's complete. This is Palm Sunday, isn't it? You know, for a moment there, they saw that. But again, when he came riding into Jerusalem, they still did not see that his kingdom was not of this world. And here, they don't quite see that either. But all their eyes were fixed on him. They were a captive audience, and it's like they still didn't hear what he had to say. Today, he announces the Messianic age. The Jews ought to have been impressed, right? I've been waiting for this for centuries. And now he's here, the Messiah. Wow. We don't have a fuller exposition of what's going on here, but you'd have to go back to Isaiah to see all of this. What is their reaction? Verse 23. That is, I'm sorry, 22. What is their reaction? Well, beyond being amazed and everything impressed initially, what do we read in 22b? Is not this Joseph's son? What do you make of that? We heard everything he said. He, he's right. That's what Isaiah wrote. What's their response? <laughs> Isn't this Joseph's boy? I'm stopping here today, but we have a hint of what's to come. The Messiah? He's a carpenter. Isn't he Joseph's kid? What's going on here? They might as well have asked him for a sign, even though he's given it in the word of God. It's like they, you know, prove it. 
You're the Messiah, prove it. There's a, a hint of unbelief here. This is a problem for them. All of this has been said to them and yet they haven't completely turned to him. They've got this reservation. Aren't you Joseph's boy? They heard him and they heard his message. But we're going to see as we study further here, they didn't take it to heart. Not many of them. Not many. All of they could remember was we knew him when he was working beside his father in the carpenter shop. And he's the Messiah? I don't know about that. There was a lot of consternation. Uh, and later we're going to see actually an evil response to this. Well, as we end today, my question to you is, uh, what's your response to this message of the Messiah? What's your response to the preached gospel that you hear here week after week? Or even if you study it in your devotions, wherever you hear this message, what is your response to this one? Do we believe him? You say, sure, I, I believe it. I wouldn't have become a member of this church if I didn't. Is it reflected in your personal life that you believe this? Or when you leave here after a worship service, do things revert back to an absence of mind about who we're serving? These people stood there, heard all this. It, it had to boggle their minds how he brought before them the prophet Isaiah and properly interpreted the word, but they didn't want to hear it. What's your response to all of this? Any questions or comments? Well, no disagreement apparently. That's good. That's good. Well, let me dismiss this in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the word. We thank you for our Savior. How humbled we are that he came and gave us all we needed for life and faith, and we have sometimes rejected it. Maybe not open-handedly, Father, but by the way we live. Forgive us. We pray that we would be more uh, dedicated to actually believing and living the words of our Savior. Bless this word to us as we go. Sanctify us through it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.